Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we will be continuing on in the series, Hope Amidst the Darkness. Pastor David will be reading from Micah 5, 5b through verse 15. The name of the sermon is called Deliver Us. Let's join Pastor David now. Uh, let me pray before we go any further. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for today. We thank you for uh, just this gift of witnessing uh, baptism, both in the first service and, and today in this service. We thank you for the glimpse into what you are doing in us and amongst us. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to come and remind ourselves and say back to you how good and great you are. And Lord, as we turn to your word now, we ask that you would move in our hearts. We appreciate and know and realize, Father, that this work of going about delivering your word and hearing your word, Lord, is a two-way conversation. So, Father, we ask that you would find in us humble hearts. And Lord, we ask that you would speak, that we would know what your word means and what your word means for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, please meet me uh, in the book of Micah. We'll be in chapter 5, going through the second half of that chapter. Micah chapter 5, verses 5b, the second half of verse 5, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 15. Again, if you're new to the study of the Bible, uh, there's often a table of contents at the, at the beginning of your Bible. We're preaching from the English Standard Version. If you're pulling up a version on your phone or your computer or wherever you might have it, uh, but however you can get there, please meet me. Micah chapter 5, verses 5 through 15. Let me read God's Word before we look at what He has to say today. Micah chapter 5, verse 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations." In the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion amongst the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Verse 10, and in the day, declares the Lord, in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I'll destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all of your strongholds. I will cut off sorcerers from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. You shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities, in verse 15, and in anger and in wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. That's the chunk that we're going to look at today. And it raises the question, at least in my mind, we might ask the question, where is the problem with the world? 
Sometimes we've asked the question, what's, what's the problem with the world? What's the big overarching problem that causes all other problems in this world? And when we look at the entire story of the Bible, we go back all the way to the beginning. Remember Genesis chapter 3 where sin enters the scene? And we know biblically, biblical Christianity claims that the problem with the world is actually a, a sin problem. That there is a, a severance between, um, we've been severed from God himself. We've turned our backs on him. We've rebelled against him. We've lost relationship with God before Genesis 3. Remember? Paradise. Perfect relationship with God. Perfect relationship with each other. Perfect relationship with creation. Sin enters the scene and everything is now broken, fallen. Everything is pervaded and pervasively touched by the presence of sin. What's the problem with the world? We might come at it from a different angle, but where is the problem with the world? And have you noticed that society will volley on this question, doesn't it? Oh, you'll hear some in society say, you know, the problem of the world, it's, it's out there. It's in systems, it's in structures, it's in oppressive dynamics, it's in brokenness, in, in abuses of power. The problem of sin is out there, that's where it is. We'll also hear the other side of the coin. Some will say, no, 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 the problem is it's in here. It's, it's morality, it's virtue, it's uh, uh, behavior or the lack of all three of those things. No, the problem's not out there, the problem's in here. And the Christian doctrine of sin actually helps us navigate through both of these. We see in the Christian doctrine of sin that sin both has a deep, deep, deep tap root in the human heart. That sin goes deeper than we are often comfortable to admit. And yet, sin also, like a tree, has roots and branches. That sin manifests itself in all sorts of various different ways in society. So, in some ways, we run into some trouble if we say sin is only out there, only out there. We're going to be naive to how deep sin goes in our hearts. But if we say, no, 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 sin is only in here, we're going to be naive to the various ways that the brokenness of this life manifests itself in life and in society and in structures. The good news is God delivers us from both. God delivers us both from evil without and sin within. That's where Micah chapter 5 is going. Let's break this down into two parts. God delivers us from evil without. The brokenness, the evil that we see out there, God delivers us from that, and that's what these opening verses are describing. Look at what it says again, verse 5, second half of verse 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword in the land of Nimrod and its entrances. And he, singular, shall deliver us from the Assyrian when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads within our border. Now remember, this is another reminder as we go through Micah that the entire book of Micah is forecasting a coming exile. The Assyrian nation is going to come in, uh, destroy the city, displace God's people, and that's what this, this verse, again, these two verses are winking at, this coming Assyrian exile. And in the same breath, God is also promising shepherds. He's promising uh, princes to come in, these under-shepherds or under-rulers who will come in and deliver God's people. Now, these shepherds are anticipating 
the great shepherd. Did you catch that? It talked about seven shepherds, eight princes, seven representing a number of completion, of fullness, eight kind of winking at more than enough. The idea is, was God is saying is, I will give you more than enough rulers and leaders to deliver you from this season. And these under-shepherds, these under-deliverers are in anticipation for the great shepherd, the great deliverer, the ultimate king. Notice what it said. Seven shepherds, eight princes of men. That's verse 5. They, verse 6, plural, shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he, singular, shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land. And we see, in, in some ways, almost a side note, as we look at prophecy in the Old Testament in general, or prophecy in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, sometimes these books are hard. <laughs> Have you ever read through these things and, and asked, what in the world is, is going on? And one of the reasons Old Testament prophecy is uniquely challenging is because timing can be hard to discern. That there are some prophecies that are filled kind of more recent to the prophetic utterance. There are some that are filled a little bit later. There are some that are fulfilled at Christ's first coming. There are some that won't be fulfilled until Christ's second coming. And part of the challenge, if you've been reading through this book with us and you think, man, this is a really hard book, it's kind of confusing, that's a very common, common, common experience. Because reading through the prophets is something like driving down the expressway, you know, at expressway speeds. And have you ever asked the question, how long are those little white lines in the, in the middle of the road? Or how far apart are those lines from each other? We look at those as we're driving along, along and we think, you know, maybe they're what? two feet, three feet, something like that, maybe three feet or four feet apart. Did you know that, according to Google, those lines are like 10 to 15 feet long and like 30 feet apart? And in a similar sense, it's, it's hard to discern the distance between those two lines because we're cruising along and we're seeing it uh, 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 from a horizontal plane. Very similarly, in prophecy, sometimes we see God's promise of deliverance, and we might ask, but what, when is that going to happen? Now, there's kind of two paths you can take at this point. You can take a, a really nerdy path, which is kind of fun, actually, to dig down deep into, into God's Word, whether it's through a study Bible, whether it's a, a commentary that you want to buy, to try to sort out, yeah, wait a second, where, how is this all fulfilled, and how does it all unfold? And that is a worthwhile use of your energy and time, that God's Word is, is designed to be studied, to, to plumb into the depths, and to appreciate all the layers in which God is unfolding His Word. That's one way you can take it. The other way you can approach this is, if you're feeling discouraged of, man, I'm kind of lost in the forest, I'm lost in the trees, I'm missing the forest, zoom back out and just appreciate that what God's Word is saying is, I will deliver. I'll deliver you. That's what he's saying in these first two verses, that I will deliver you from, from evil without. And that's a promise that he gives to his people, Israel, in this moment. And that's a promise that we can also appreciate as God's people in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in Christ, when we put our hope and faith and trust in him, we are saved. 
And we also appreciate some of the nuances of the timing of this, that we know the moment we place our faith and trust in Christ, we're saved. Past tense, completed, finished, done. Based on the past work that Christ has done on the cross. And God is saving us. Present tense. This is sanctification. This is the journey of our lifelong process of Christian discipleship. This is the everyday process of becoming more like Christ, dying to sin and living to Christ. He is saving us present tense, and He will save us in the ultimate analysis, at the final uh, chapters of the story, when He returns again in His second coming. We know we will be saved. That's glorification. In a similar sense, we look through God's promises all throughout the Bible, and we can appreciate the nuances of when these things are going to come into their ultimate fulfillment. And we see here that God's word is saying, I will deliver you from evil without, from the brokenness that you see out there, from the various ways that sin manifests itself in society. I will be your ultimate deliverer. Now look at verses 7 through 9. Look what, he, what God's word says next. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion amongst the beasts of the forest, like a young lion amongst the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears into pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Jump to verse 15, the final verse of this chapter. And in anger, this is God speaking, and in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on all the nations that did not obey. Now, jump back to verse 7. Notice that God is delivering a remnant. Verse 7, a remnant of Jacob. Verse 8, a, the remnant of Jacob. And this idea of a remnant shows up all the way throughout redemptive history. That God is doing this redeeming work of his people from Genesis 3, pursuing us all the way to the end of history. He's pursuing us and saving us and redeeming us to himself. And he often does this in, in, in a remnant fashion in the sense that there are periods of, of redemptive history where calamity strikes, difficulty strikes, uh, in some parts of the Bible where God's judgment comes down, and yet he always gathers together a remnant, a nucleus of God's people, groupings of God's people, a faithful remnant who humble themselves under God, who, who turn their hearts and their minds and their affection to God, and God carries through his past promises in a fresh, present, and future tense working of his sovereign hand. This is the, this remnant principle that he will carry his promises through. And sometimes he does it by gathering a people to himself to see his promises take place through us. Now, what does that mean for us? It's a call to our hearts to pray. It's a call to hearts, our hearts to humble ourselves before God. It's a call to our hearts to humble ourselves and say, Lord, may you do that work in us, that he would find in us, that he would find in every gospel preaching church, a, a group of people, a people faithful to him in response to his faithfulness to us, that through his people, through groups of his people, he would carry on his old promises in a fresh working through us. This is what this means for you and I. This is, this is calling us to a season of humility and dependence, a season of trust, a season of tuning our hearts to Him. 
And I think it is no mistake, many of you know very well that Village is, is marching through a process of discerning our next mission and vision and values. We're asking in this season, Lord, what is your will for us? We're not coming saying, hey, this is our will. Lord, help us please to do it. We're saying, no, Lord, what is your will? And as many of you know, the elders have assembled, assembled a team, a kind of a task force to help spearhead this project. And we'll continue to keep you updated as we go. It's both on the website. It's both in these prayer initiatives you see in the back of the auditorium. That this is a season that we are coming to God and saying, Lord, your will be done through us. Give us a sense of clarity. Give us a sense of insight. Give us a sense of focus and direction. Give us a, a, an overwhelming sense that you would speak so clearly to us as a church that we would not, the only other option is to obey or run. May it be so clear that we have to obey, that we want to obey, that we see the opportunities that God has for us. May he be gathering in us a nucleus of people, this church, to do a fresh working of his old promises through us. Several months ago, I was thinking, man, amidst this coronavirus season, this is like the worst time to try to do this project. But then as we continued through, I thought, well, maybe actually this is the exact time that God wanted us to do this project. A season where we say, okay, Lord, <laughs> if there was ever a season where we all know what it feels like to say, okay, Lord, we don't know. <laughs> you know. Show us. And when you get a heart disposition like that pervading through an entire community of believers, that is a ripe, fresh atmosphere through which I think God can work. It's that kind of mindset when it pervades an entire group of people that God says, now watch me move. Now watch how I work, that we can only give the credit to him. So village, what does this remnant idea mean for you and I? It means that we are to come to him in prayer, in dependence, in anticipation, in trust, in faith, knowing that all the work that he has done in the past, he's been faithful in the past, and he will be faithful now, and he will be faithful in the future. And I want to be a part of it, and I want you to be a part of it. And we want to see the various ways in which God is leading us to carry on his work, his promises, through us. Anticipation. Appreciating God delivers us and sees us through and will carry us through so that the village church of five years from now, ten years from now, would look back on this season of prayer and dependence and trust and seeking his face. And we would say all along the way, it was all of God and none of us see this, appreciate this from the book of Micah as it is showing in, uh, of his people, Israel then, in a similar, different situation, different context, but same encouragement and promise that we can take for today. Now, some of you might be listening to this and hearing verses 7 through 9 and as, as I expound on them and describe this concept, but you might be thinking, wait a second, hold on, I have a question about a verse elsewhere. What in the world is going on in verse 15? <laughs> notice when I read that, notice how we felt when I read that. Listen to this, verse 15, that God is delivering us from evil without. And look at verse 15, says, In anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Now some of you might come to that verse and you say, 
okay, yes, exactly. That is the kind of verse that makes me have a pretty big problem with the Bible or a pretty big problem with God. In anger, in wrath, I will execute vengeance? And either you yourself have asked that question or certainly someone you know has asked that question of, wait a second, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can trust the God of the Bible if he is a God of anger and wrath and vengeance. That, that's not comforting. That's concerning to me. Ever had that question? Ever talked to someone who's had that thoughtful question? Well, I think one of the reasons when we read verses like this, and there's a little bit of part of us that kind of cringes, it's like nails on a chalkboard, is because often you and I, in our human experience, as finite, broken, limited human beings, we're not God, we often experience anger and wrath, those emotions, rarely, 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 almost, if ever, as positive things. We often see those two things as tools not used to help, but tools used to hurt. In our sinfulness and our brokenness, we get anger and wrath wrong more often than not. But, but I think at least in two places, we see glimpses, glimpses, glimpses of even in our human experience, how we see these things used for good. Stick with me. This is important because this question is so important. Anger and wrath. Think of, let's think about anger first. If there's someone that you deeply, deeply love, a spouse, a child, a friend, maybe a cousin or uncle or aunt, or someone that you care a lot about and you love them, when you see them relapse into either an addictive substance or addictive behavior or addictive pattern, when you see them make a massive decision that you know is going to undo a huge part of their life or really bring them down a dark path, have you noticed we get angry? Is it because we hate them? No, it's absolutely the opposite. It's because we love them so much that when we see someone we love and care about and we'd do anything for them, we'd give our life for them if we could, and when someone that we love that dearly makes a decision or relapses or, or takes a turn for the worst, it, we get angry at the evil and sin inside of them. And we also, there's dynamics that we get angry at them because we love them, we care about them. And we don't want to see them go down a path that's going to hurt them. That's a righteous, a good expression of anger. Let's look at wrath. Um, you might have had the experience when you're driving along and perhaps you're driving by a park or maybe a, a school, an elementary school. Have you had the moment where you're driving along and then in the rearview mirror, this bright white flash of a camera and you realize, oh, I've just been captured on camera. Have you had that experience before? <laughs> okay, me neither, me neither. <laughs> But in theory, in theory, when you're driving along and all of a sudden you realize, man, a lovely picture of my car is going to show up in the mail with an opportunity to make a financial contribution to the city. What a, what a joy. Those cameras, you know, do you know what those cameras are? All wrath, no mercy. All judgment, 
No mercy. We can't pause and say, hey, I was running late to work. I had to, I had to really get going. We can't say, wait, well, hold on. I mean, it was just like three over. I mean, can you be a little bit merciful? And notice those cameras, it's not that they, now, believe, it's not that they hate us. They're not trying to get us. They're designed, anything that goes past my camera at this amount over the speed limit, I've got to take a picture. This is what I'm designed to do. That in many ways, that's a small expression of holding us accountable to the law, holding evil or wrongdoing or wickedness accountable to the law. Now, we all hate those cameras <laughs> until it's your child that has to walk across that street or, or until it's your family that's playing at that park next to that busy street. We all hate those cameras until there's someone we care about that we want to know if someone is watching out, that someone is holding wrongdoing accountable for the good of others. And do you see how all of a sudden this metaphor changes? I, I love the, the baby on board stickers when I'm driving and I see one of those stickers. They really should say mama bear on board and y'all better watch out. I mean, they should, you know, I feel like in my imagination, I drive by those and I just, I'm just ready for, mom's got a speed camera on me. She says, I'll make a citizen's arrest. You better slow down. And there is something good and right about that. That is a human expression of wrath. That we say, hey, because I love the other person so much, I cannot make an excuse. I, you drive past here, you're going to get your picture taken. I cannot make an excuse for, for evil and, and brokenness and, and wickedness. I can't let it just fall through the cracks. I've got to move against it. Now, these are two small, human, finite glimpses. Glimpses, because more often than not, you and I don't experience anger and wrath in its pure, right-fitting sense. But if we know even glimpses of it, how much more does the God of the universe, I mean, these are parts of his attributes, that he is holy, he's just, that he is not a God that lets evil and brokenness just slide between the cracks, or just, he, he doesn't just close his eyes and say, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to let that one pass, it's not that big of a deal. He's holy, he's just, because he is so loving. He must be these things, because he loves us and he loves others. I came across a quote in preparation for this message that I think sums this up very well. Stick with me. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but it's written by Miroslav Volf, who's a creation-born theologian. He lived through the nightmare years in the former Yugoslavia. Listen to what Miroslav Volf says on this topic of, of God's wrath. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. Listen to this. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come, says Wolf. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I couldn't imagine God not being angry. 
Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Now listen to how he concludes. Though I used to... Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I have come to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. Listen to this. This is what Wolf says. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And do you see... Even in our human fallen experiences, we have glimpses of that because we care so much about those we love, because we care so much about others that we know glimpses of what it feels like to have a righteous anger against evil inside of us that undoes us or evil that puts others at risk. How much more so does God? God isn't wrathful and angry in spite of his love. He's wrathful and angry at sin and brokenness and evil because he is love. Now watch how the gospel takes it even one step further. You, nowhere else provides both and. Listen to this. God is both just and holy. He must take action against sin and brokenness and evil and suffering in this life. And he offers us mercy and grace and forgiveness. How does he do both and? He does both and because of the cross. That at this moment on the cross, do you know what God is doing? God is willingly taking on the punishment of God. The punishment that you and I deserve. He was bearing in that moment God's anger and God's wrath that was directed at, at the wrongdoing that I have done, the sins that I have done that have undone myself. The, sin, the sins that I have done that have put others at risk or hurt others. So simultaneously, God's justice is upheld and God's mercy is offered. Why? Because Jesus Christ said, send me instead. That God has to, in order to stay consistent with his own nature and character, God must take action against sin and brokenness and evil and suffering. God the Son, Jesus Christ says, I will absorb it. I will take it on my own shoulders. I will be humiliated, beaten, whipped, and nailed to the cross so that you and I might be reconciled, welcomed, forgiven, brought home, and then turned to be peacemakers of those in our midst and around us. Do you see what the gospel offers? Do you see how you're not going to find this anywhere else in the sense of an answer to the problem with the world and a solution to the problem with the world, one in which that profoundly humbles us and forgives us. God delivers us from evil without. He is our deliverer. He is our savior. He's our king. He's our substitute. He's the one that carries us through and delivers us from the evil that we see out there. The branches of the way in which sin and brokenness manifests itself in society. God saves us from that and God delivers us from sin within. Both evil without and sin within. Look at the next verses, 10 through 14. God's word says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your 
horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off your cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorcerers from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. Now, what is going on in these verses? And we see five times, I'll cut off, I'll cut off, I'll cut off, I'll cut off, I will root out. And what God is doing is he's doing open heart soul surgery on his people. One of the reformers has said, our, our hearts are idol-making factories. We are designed for worship. We're designed to put our ultimate hope and trust in something or someone. And we get very creative. We as human beings get very creative in finding other things to worship other than God. And what God is doing for his own people is he is surgically removing them. He's cutting them off. Now, this is a good kind of pain. Uh, this, this is a place where God's people come before him and, and we entrust ourselves to the hands of the physician, in this case, the great physician, that when he enters our hearts, he sanctified, in our, he does surgery on us and roots out other gods or other things that we're putting our hope and our trust in. And it's a list of kind of three different concepts. Number one, God cuts off their sense of power and protection their horses, their chariots, their cities, their strongholds. This is military might. This is the power of their nation. And how often is it so easy for us, instead of ultimately looking to God to be our power, our protection, our, our, our stronghold, instead of looking to God, sometimes we look to nation. Sometimes we look to military might and we say, I know everything's going to be okay because I've got my nation there for me. Does God not want that position in our heart? Is God not the only one that we can truly say that sentence that I know everything's going to be okay, I'll be protected, there'll be a sense of power because God is God and he's my God and he's given himself for me and I've given myself to him and God comes into his people in, the, in Micah chapter 5 and says, I'm going to root out this idolatry of military might and nation because I want you to trust me. I want you to find your power and protection in me and nothing else. And God's word goes on to say and to talk about their sorcerers and tellers of fortunes. And you and I all know what it feels like to want to know what the future holds. We want to know the future. We want to know, am I going to get this job or that job? Am I going to keep this job or that job? Am I going to marry this person or that person? Am I going to get into this school or that school? How is this or that season going to unfold? We want to know the future. And sometimes, as an expression of idolatry of our hearts, we try to scheme, or we, we, we try to do runarounds, or we try to control a situation to, to make certain a specific outcome is going to happen, that our future would be secure. And God says, I'm going to cut off these fortune tellers, these sorcerers from your hand that you would no longer put your hope in just what the future might hold, but who holds the future, as it's been said before? God says, I don't want you to put your hope in the future. I want you to put your hope in me, the one who holds your future. Trust in me. God goes on to continue to say, I'll root out your carved images, your pillars. You're no longer going to bow to the work of your hands. I'm going to root out your Asherah images. I'm going to destroy your cities. 
This is God cutting out the idol of religiosity. And how easy is it, especially us as church people, if you've been around church circles for a long time or a large part of your life, it's very easy for our hearts to slip into the idea of, God, I know you're proud of me. I know you delight me. I know you're happy with me because look how busy I am for you. Look how good of an employee I am for you. What a gift I am to your kingdom. Just look at all the things I'm doing. Look at why I'm serving. Look at what I'm giving. Look at how I'm serving my neighbor. And that's how I know you're happy with me. And very subtly in our own hearts, we can start to see our own standing before God based on our religious resume, based on how busy we are for God instead of seeing our standing before God by grace and grace alone that there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any more. <laughs> do you know that? Be freed by that. Let God root out that idol from your heart that he loves you. If you've put your hope and faith in Christ, he loves you, period. It doesn't matter how busy your schedule is or isn't. He loves you in and of himself. This is salvation by grace. And what God is doing through this passage and in our hearts, he's, he's rooting out our idols because it can be very easy to subtly in our human hearts to start to view God as kind of the midwife to our real desires that we start to say you know I really want this I really have this or that goal for myself for my family or my children I really have these career goals and those goals and God can you just please deliver those for me but when we start to see God as just the midwife to our real desires, do you notice whatever that real desire is, that's our God. That's who we're worshiping. And God is just our cosmic sidekick to try to deliver those things to us. That's when we start to get angry at him. That's when we start to get impatient with him. Hey, I've got this goal. How come you're not delivering this to me? <laughs> we all know the experience of in the middle of the summer months, when it's sunny and bright, the birds are in the air going to get ice cream. Been to some of these outdoor ice cream parlors. You drive in, you stand in line. Do you notice we don't go get ice cream to get to know the cashier? It's not that we hate them. It's not that we don't care about them. But we go to get ice cream to get ice cream. We just look right past them at, at the smorgasbord, the, the options. We just get lost in... in visions of sprinkles and banana splits and cherries and the large chocolate cone dipped in chocolate. And it's really about the ice cream, isn't it? It's not about the cashier. How easy is it for us to start viewing our Christian life as going to get ice cream and saying, you know, God, I just want you so that you can get me that. And how easy, easy is it for us to say, God, uh, give me that, please. And then if he doesn't, we get, we get angry at him, don't we? Or if he's not fast enough or he doesn't get us our ice cream on time, we kind of get frustrated at him. Or, or we just look past him for the things that we really, really want. And we realize, man, I don't want God at all. I just want the things that he gives me. Now, don't get me wrong. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. So says James. God is a heavenly Father who pours out blessing on his children. But it can be very easy for us to start worshiping the blessing and not the blesser. Now, I want you to see two things in this. Number one, see God's patience. 
See his patience for you and I. This is convicting for me too. We all do this. See God's patience that there are some seasons in our life where we're not thinking about God. We just want what he can give us. Do you see his patience in that? Sometimes he still provides those things that we want, even when we look right past them. And then also see his love in this. Why? Because God loves us so much, because he wants this relationship with us, sometimes he will cut off things we really want to show us he is all we've ever needed. Sometimes he will go out of his way in love, which is painful for us, to cut off the things that we really want, the things that we really want him to deliver, so that we can finally see clearly that he is all we've ever needed, and that he and he alone is enough for our worship and our praise. And the Christian life of worship is, Lord, I praise you because you can give me this or that. It's I praise you, period. Because you in and of yourself are our worthy enough. And this is the work of God in our lives. And I think it is no mistake that this week we are entering a season of prayer and fasting. We're taking one week as an entire church to say, you know what, I'm going to fast and I'm going to seek the Lord. And if you've never done this before, I would encourage you to try it out. Do it with us. Check out the website for more information about what to pray for and the various options of what to fast. But I would encourage you, just file through the things in your life that you care about. Oftentimes, we fast from food, and that's an important thing. You also might consider fasting from social media, non-work-related or school-related screen time, something in your life that you care about that you're going to willingly give up and cut out of your life for a week to seek the Lord. Now, Let's look at food. Should I fast from broccoli or chocolate? <laughs> Some things are easier to fast for than other things. So I would encourage you, just file through your week, file through the things that you care about, and when you find something in your life that you think, maybe I should give this up, when that thing turns and bites back, <laughs> when that thing turns to you and says, hey, hey, hey don't go overboard here, Oh, hey, hey, hey. You, can't, you can't live a week without me. When you consider fasting from something, it says, ah, don't even dare. Don't, don't go there. You need me, and I need you. You couldn't make it a week without me. When it starts to say that to you, do you know what you found? An idol. You found an idol. And my friends, idols do not die willingly. They don't go down without a fight. They say, kicking and screaming, you cannot exist without me. The only person qualified to say that into your soul is God and God alone. And take this week and ask, Lord, is there something in my life that I need to root out? Is there something that I've been wanting you to deliver that I've been worshiping it instead of worshiping you? Would you consider this week, taking this week to fast from that, to clear the clutter, to see God clearer, to seek him in prayer, to seek him in, in time in his word, that he might perform this sanctifying surgery on your heart and my heart to, to prepare us for a season in which he will continue to work this fresh working of God, of his old promises, through a new season. And my friends, do you see how encouraging how helpful this passage is that when we ask the question, where's the problem with the world? 
Is it out there? Is it in here? And God says, I will deliver you from both, evil without and sin within. And if you want that kind of hope, the kind of hope that has an answer for the brokenness we see out there, the kind of hope that can reach the depths of our hearts that need to be sanctified and renewed and made new, that hope is found in a person. That hope is found in Christ. Won't you turn to him? Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for the hard grace that you give us. Lord, showing us that you love us just so much that you are willing to perform surgery on our hearts, that you will take care of us so much so to the extent that you'll deliver us. So, Father, I, I pray. I pray for myself. I pray for all of us, Lord. This is a hard passage, not because it's hard to understand, because we know just how much work you have to do in our hearts. So, Father, may you find in us humble hearts. Find in us a willingness to open up our souls to our great physician that you might do a work in us, a saving and sanctifying and redeeming work. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.